The Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in Wine and Space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Episode 58. Doctor Who. The Tenth Planet. Hello everyone and a very warm welcome to the Exton Moss Experiment. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. And tonight we're going to get around to Doctor Who, The Tenth Planet, in memoriam of Earl Cameron, who's died at the age of 102. Now, he is the oldest actor ever to have been in Doctor Who. Uh, he was the very first, so I'm reliably informed, the very first black astronaut anywhere on telly, anywhere in the world. That was part of his obituary on the Doctor Who news page and they're usually pretty accurate. I think he was the first black actor to play a lead role in a feature film as well. Which was? I, I can't remember. Mm. There might be something more specific about it than that, in that it was the first lead action role in a, a feature film or something. But it, it, he was quite a big deal anyway, mm. which is why we're doing this in memoriam, even though he's only in a couple of the episodes. It's also a good excuse to watch The Tenth Planet. There is that. Now, before we start, of course, we have to get the lid off the gin bottle. <laughs> Tonic screwdriver out. What have we got for tonight? We have Ninth Wave Irish Gin, distilled from nature's finest botanicals in a very, very nice looking bottle mm. with um, swirly stuff over it. God, the info bollocks is particularly bollocksy this time. In Celtic mythology, the Ninth Wave is the barrier that separates the earthly world from the other world. It is said to be greater than any other wave before it and, un- and holds the key to unlocking your journey. Product of Ireland, uh, and the botanicals are cassia bark, lemon verbena, orange peel, cardamom, grains of paradise, juniper berries, coriander seeds, angelica root, and orris roots. There's nothing actually wildly innovative there. What do you think? I'm not keen. It's, um, now I'm going to say I'm not keen because it's just not to my palate. It's a little bit sharp and it leaves quite a bitter aftertaste, but it's not a bad gin. It's just not to my taste. So for that reason, me personally, I'm going to give it two, but it is, it's quite sharp. I think it has quite a a nasty bitterness after Mm. it. Sharpness, no, not really, but there's that slightly overdone bitter, bitter aftertaste. So for me, I think that's a three. Because we've had some nasty gins. We have. This isn't badly made. It's just, uh, no, not, not to my taste. Would probably make a very nice pink gin. Yeah, maybe with the edge knocked off it, possibly. Um, mm. But we're not assessing these on their ability to make pink gins. We're assessing them on their ability to tonic up a screwdriver. So here we are, back in the viewing room. Uh, Spaff has got his... Oh, what are you on tonight, Spaff? That is no concern of yours. Chili rice crackers. So without further ado, it's Ron VT on episode one. Now, for those who aren't aware, The Tenth Planet was William Hartnell's last story as the first Doctor, and it's the second story of season four from 1966. And the only one that in that fourth filming block that William Hartnell made, because The Smugglers was made at the end of the third filming block and held over. 
Well, I, th- I thought the script was held over. It was I don't think that they filmed it and held it over. I thought it was just the script. Okay. Could be wrong with that. I mean, that does make more sense, considering the way that it was produced. From what you've, se- you've seen of the restaged... The ones for Twice Upon a Time. They look absolutely spot on. Mm. See, there is a lot of that that hasn't been released on DVD yeah. or Blu-ray. I don't know why. That- Unless they're saving it for somebody. So, there he is. Earl Cameron. How old did Olaf Pooley live to? Because he was over 100. He was, I think he was 102, but... Not as far into it as... Not as far into it as as Earl Cameron. Because the the third oldest is uh, some extra or something from something like the the Crusade. I I did look her up the other day, but she was 101. Um, Wasn't the woman who played Kamika pretty long-lived in the Aztecs? There's a list, actually. Again, on the doc. Of course, of course there's a list. Now, looking at this, apart from um, some fairly directed snow, that's a pretty good set. Yeah, and as it pulls further back, you can you can see where the, the snow machine snow is. Machine is. <laughs> but actually, it looks pretty good. Now, unless my memory's playing tricks. Mm. That picture quality looks a lot better than the picture quality that, of the clip they used in Twice Upon a Time. It's difficult to see why it would be. Although that, I mean, this is very good picture quality, isn't it? Mm. The snow lying on the ground was sawdust, while the snow was bits of polystyrene being blown around, which Michael Cray has got jammed up his nose. And that's how one of the makeup ladies, Edwina Cray's, oh, well, Edwina, whatever her name was, they, uh, that's how they married. They got together and got married. Well, you can tell how engaging this is because we haven't really said very much. Mm. See, I've always given Tenth Planet a bit of a bad rep as being a bit dull. I mean, the story makes very little sense other than the the Cybermen, which are a fantastic invention, Mm. but really come into their own later. Oh, Kip Hedler contributed to Tomorrow's World, I hadn't known that. Mm. Hedler came up with the basic ideas. So the whole extra planet thing doesn't seem wildly scientific. I think the idea that it's been hidden behind the sun all this time. Oh, no, it's drifted off. And drifted off, off out of it, yeah. On a journey into outer space and then drifted back again. Might Big Finish have come up with it? Big Finish, no. I think, in Spare Parts, which is a fifth Doctor story. Um, is excellent. Is ec- it is excellent. doesn't explain what happened with Mondas. Well, it drifted, it was hidden behind, that's probably where I've got the hidden behind the sun bit from. It was hidden behind the sun and then drifted out of the solar system, but they, they built a planetary propulsion system, which is how it's drifted back. It's more been flown back. It's still a hell of a stretch of uh, scientific imagination, though. See, Ben looking terribly serious, and although he's on parade, Polly desperately trying not to laugh. <laughs> Apparently, Robert Basie was uh, a, a lot of fun off recording. And there's, uh, there's one of the others. The, Dr. Barclay, I think, in this. Uh, you'd never think to look at it, he's playing it so well. He was really a, an absolute riot in the green room. His hat's at a very jaunty end. It is a bit rakish. 
He don't like a lot of personnel. Cuts down to a bare minimum and works them right into the ground. We only spend a couple of months on this station anyway. We can't stand more than that. <laughs> Suddenly, after being really severe with them all, it's quite jovial and jocular. There's only really the general that never really warms up. Yeah. Nineteen eighty-six, which for them just seemed wildly far in the future, and now seems a long way in the past. Mm. Mind you, at least um, the twenty—they've not imagined wildly technological advances in 20 years, which is what they usually do. I was going to say, that's a terrible boom mic coming in, but it isn't. It's the little periscope thing coming <laughs> the in. The little periscope. <laughs> I mean, this space capsule set doesn't actually look wildly improved from the one in Quotemass 2. No. Okay, the, the stamina of the astronauts looks a little improved. Mm. See, this is what I like about 1960s science fiction, mm. particularly Star Trek. Star Trek was always, without any sort of force, just very multicultural. Mm. And no one's really, in all the years that I've been a fan of Doctor Who, no one's ever really made a big deal of Earl Cameron being black. It's only in recent years that everyone's really focused in on it. Up to this point, he's just been an actor in it and and to be honest that I, I prefer that sort of view he's just an actor in it who happens to be rather than focusing on his skin colour because um, he is easily one of the best things in it but that's because he's a good actor yeah and it does come just one story after The Smugglers where the, a very big deal is made in the story about the fact that one of the characters is black well yeah but that's pertinent to the time that's set in is it 17th century or 18th century call? I love the smugglers so much. 17th century, I think it's sort of Jamaica oh. in Daphne du Maurier. See, I'm really partial to that sort of thing. I love anything piratical. I loved uh, Treasure Island, the novel. I think I read that in two days when I was in my early teens. I quite like Jamaica in. I'm ashamed to say I've never read it. I, I read loads of Daphne du Maurier when I, left, when I lived in um, Cornwall. Well, I've read Rebecca, and is Genevieve one of those? I can't remember now. I can't remember. The House on the Strand is. That's quite an interesting time travelling thing. That was the last thing that she wrote. Right. Not, no, I don't know that one. Because she either did sort of historically type stuff or science fictiony type stuff. Didn't did she? she? Well, she did the birds. Oh, sort of, yeah, sort of fantastical. House on the Strand is a time travel thing. That I did not know. So I was having a Twitter conversation with uh, one of the big Finnish writers a few weeks back about Tenth Planet. Mm -hmm. And I put forward the idea that the Doctor basically is the first representation on screen of a Doctor Who fan here. He writes something cryptic on a note, passes it around that he knows something they don't, <laughs> and never explains how he knew, where he got the information from. He just retreats into the background and watches the ensuing chaos without ever explaining what he meant. <laughs> These two are doing the level best to do astronaut in peril acting, and it comes across quite well. They look knackered. He is putting a fantastic performance in. Mm. And actually the, uh, the tracking room is very nicely done as mm. well, isn't it? Space, Space fatigue. fatigue. <laughs> yes, you can make anything sound 
<laughs> science fiction by putting space in front of it. Oh, did William Hartnell live in Bodmin? Oh, well, no, he was on holiday in Bodmin. Yeah. They say after recently completing work on the smugglers, so. It's quite a big set, the way it goes back, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. Where are not quite sure, sir. Let me have another You say you know what this is. Well, actually, I don't. Of all the recognisable bits on the globe, she recognises Malaysia. I'm glad it's not just me that's thought that over the years. Ben, oh, that looks like South America. Yes, fair enough. That looks like Africa, but that looks like Malaysia. Mm. How did you know? Well, I can't tell you that. Now, you clearly know something more about the situation. Can you be more explicit? Yes, sir, I'm sorry. I'm afraid I can. There's just no explanation about how he knows all of this None stuff. None at all. Ever. And it doesn't stop it being an engaging story. I've always said the Doctor doesn't have anything to do in this story, really. They all turn up. Beyond Ben, I don't think any of them actually do anything. No, Polly does a lot of... Oh, she, I mean, she does the whole emotions speech with this mm. The Cyberman. But what I mean is they don't, they're not integral to, they don't have any influence on the outcome. But actually there's quite a lot of Doctor Who stories that are like that. Well, Revelation of the Daleks is the one that springs to mind. Oh, and it says it's unusual to have him playing such a... A limited role. Well, I suppose the massacre's another one. They're not, there's not really a lot of, uh, in fact, there's hardly anything in there. It's just a nice set piece. All of the um, historicals, because they're dealing with established historical fact... And they, they don't really have, they don't really alter the plot very much, apart from bits of the Romans. I'm going to say the Romans. And, it, and it's actually a plot point in the, the Aztecs that they can't alter mm. anything. He's very craggy in this, isn't he? Yes. But he never, for all the talk of what went on off screen, I don't doubt it for a minute, he never looks on screen ill or tired or his, perform- his performance is as sharp in this as it was in An Unearthly Child. Yes. Now, there's a shot of the Cyberman spaceship landing. And it's actually a much nicer model spaceship than the one that turns up in the moon base. What, pie cans? <laughs> there have been... There's on um, uh, Facebook at the minute, on the TARDIS Builders page, there have been a lot of old photographs dug out. And it shows the various TARDIS props... Now, bear in mind that this original, that's the original TARDIS prop, and it lasted until 1974-75. Made out of wood, and it stood the test of time with a, a, a bit of tweaking here and there. Yeah, didn't it fall apart around Elizabeth Slade? Yes, it did. It's Which, given the weight of the thing... Go on. I was going to say, the arrival of the Cybermen is very atmospheric, mm. isn't it? But the Brahatsky TARDIS prop, a lot more durable than the... Is it Tom Yardley-Jones, the... Uh, the fiberglass prop they made from the, for the Leisure Hive, the brand new one. And you look at pictures, and by full circle, the bloody thing's falling apart. It just looks shabby. So build your tie-dye out of wood, kids. Build your what? Tie-dye. Tardises. It doesn't end in the US, it ends in IS.
5.5 million viewers, 77th in the weekly chart. 5.5 million now will put it quite a way above that. Audience reaction index was only 50%. And improved on the previous stories. Well, that was episode one. Um, I'd ask, what did you think? But since we were mute for great chunks of it, I think that probably speaks volumes, to be honest. But before we do, before we talk, talk about what we think about it, mm-hmm. should we do a pricey? Oh, you're better at this than I am. Go on. Right. Okay, so um, the TARDIS with the Doctor, Ben and Polly on board arrive at the South Pole just outside a military base called the Snowcap Base, run by General Custer. Cut there. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Could have been worse. I could have said Captain Custard, which would have been the road, road to Utopia. And there's a lot of snow in that. As no, well. let's not go down that route. This is um, Snowcat Base, run by General Cutler. They go, in, they go inside, uh, well, encouraged to at gunpoint, and they find out that it's a military base and predominantly looking after spaceships in orbit. There's a spaceship currently up in, or- in orbit um, that is get- starting to get into trouble with an odd energy drain. At the same time, a new planet appears close to the Earth, and they realise that it looks exactly the same in terms of land masses as the Earth. And the the Doctor's all terribly mysterious and knowing, and gives over a bit of paper saying, this is what you will see, and never actually explains how he knows what he knows. It's just, I know this thing. Ha! And then when they come back and say, well, how do you know about it? Let me have a look at this all the information you've got so he's trying to sort of inveigle himself into the um, the action that way but actually the regulars do very little they, they get captured and they get shoved away in a corner there's then another spe- uh, spaceship that arrives in quite a nice model shot actually and what we now know is uh, the first Cybermen come out kill a few guards who are outside investigating the TARDIS and use the um, the guards snow coveralls to infiltrate the base Yes. It's not the best disguise in the world, given that the Cybermen are about seven foot tall. But everybody else was a little bit distracted. And they did make the point earlier on that there were very few people there because mm. the general likes a day to run a, a very tight ship and they all go bonkers after about two months and have to leave. Beyond the fact that there, there was hardly anything for the... And I think this is, to be fair, the regulars don't do a lot in this. So I think even by the end of episode four... There's not an awful lot goes on, and it's been levelled at this over the years quite consistently by various people. But it's far more entertaining than I remember. I haven't seen this since it was on VHS. I've I've always quite liked Tenth Planet, mainly be or in large part because it's a big chunk of Ben and Polly's surviving material. Mm. I really like Ben and Polly, but they don't do a lot. Should we find out what happens in episodes two and three and come back? So episodes two and three carry on with the TARDIS crew not doing a whole lot. The Doctor keels over at the end of the second episode and spends the entirety of the third episode under a blanket. Of all the regulars, Ben has the most to do because he gets um, a couple of times managed to get hold of cyber weapons mm. and, and and kill them. And uh, He's quite upset by the fact that, because he just warned that he doesn't really want to do it. But it's the first time he kills anything. Mm. He didn't in the war machines, he doesn't in the smugglers. But he's visibly affected by yes. it. So, with Ben's help, they managed to get rid of all the Cybermen from the, the base. Cutler takes back control. 
in the meantime, the two astronauts that they were trying to rescue have run out of energy and died. And a, a rescue mission was sent up with twice the resources of the original manned by Cutler's son. Cutler decides that he's going to use a planet-cracking bomb called the Z-bomb against Mondas. The Doctor is absolutely adamant that what they need to do is just wait and let things play out, but Cutler won't hear it. Um, the, do- the TARDIS team have convinced Barclay, one of the engineers, to help out, and he tells Ben how to sabotage the rocket that is going to... Deliver blow- the bomb. Deliver the bomb to blow up Mondas. And Ben is discovered in the rocket room just as he's in the middle of doing that, gets knocked out by Cutler, and just as the rocket countdown is going along as episode three finishes, Ben saying he can't remember whether he's done what he needed to or not. And there we have the end of episode have the ending. three. Again, they're not fast-paced, but they're quite compelling. Watching them back again after all this time, I was... Because I've got the audio version. I've got the, the, a lovely CD tin set years ago with this Planet of the Daleks and a, uh, some Dalek documentary, I think. I, was, I wasn't wildly blown away by it because... As you say, it's quite slow. Nothing really happens. Everything happens at a very sort of leisurely pace. The Cybermen, they're not really in episode three. They turn up in episode two, do a bit. They're sort of padding about in the background in episode three, but not really a major part of the action. But watching it back, I've not been bored for a second. Yeah. I mean, the Geneva space control sets look really Mm. tacked on. They do, but they're not... Shabby. It's not a desk in a corner. Yeah. They, they've made the effort to make them look like some sort of uh, world control mm. centre. Um, but it's obviously quite a small set. It is. Yeah. And probably because they've needed to use up all the space for the, uh, the main control room, which does look great. Think of the sets that they had in, in part one. They've got mm. the control room, the snow cap, the TARDIS control room. They have the, I think they have the snow cap for the week after control room, the rocket room. So considering the size of the sets, what they crammed into, they were fairly, very small studios, really. Mm. You look back, you wonder how they even look in this state at all. It's always been levelled at Doctor Who. It's been a bit um, bit cheap. The budgets weren't brilliant. But I don't think it's any worse than any other 60s series that we've watched. No, I agree. We grew up watching this stuff, so, mm. uh, so we're kind of used to it. Just wonder what fans who've only known the modern, the, the modern stuff think when looking at this. It seems very likely, because a while back on a podcast, we uh, had an interview with Rich Tipple, who is uh, one of the people behind um, a, a fan colorization of Dalek's Master Plan Episode 2. And although nothing's been officially confirmed at this point, it seems fairly likely that beavering on behind the scenes, black and white episodes of Doctor Who are being colored for commercial releases. I really hope they are, because I think that it will bring a lot of those old stories to life, not only on screen, but also commercially. The arc would look quite good. It, even though I'm not too fond of it, yes, I think it would, because there's some great... They're not jungles, it's sort of the, the, the actual ship sets, there's, there's trees and whatnot on it, aren't there? Yeah, Is that I, the one with an elephant and a tiger in it? Yes. Um, and also there's the um, the prison kitchen. Uh, oh. <laughs> and they um, sort of castly set on refuses. Yes. The Ark is a very nice-looking story if you can look beyond the monoids. I've never had a, a major problem with them, apart from the fact they're all... The only distinguishing feature they've got is a sash. Mm-hmm-hmm. Well, they have numbers. Yes, I know. That's the only... Anyway. 
Um, but I always thought that they can, all things considered, the eyes, mo- the eye moves. They've at least made the effort. It's yeah. not just sort of a painted on eye. So I've, I've always been quite forgiving of the monoids. It's just never gripped me as a really entertaining story. Although it was that was another one that was split in as a four part story, split into two two parters. Yeah, and um, a nice use of time travel, which they never really did that much in the in the earlier stuff. Chess. That was more a journey through time than... Well, that's kind of what time travel is. You know what I mean. But it wasn't a an A follows B consequence story, because they shifted from locations as well. Other than the arc, do they ever do that? Well, this uh, Nerva, that's a same same location, different times. But you mean in terms of an actual... I suppose Abominable Snowman and Web of Fear. That's a direct... There's supposed to be 40 years between the two. Does Peladon count? I know you'd, you'd rather it didn't count at all. <laughs> I, I like Curse of Peladon. Curse, yes, but Monster you've always been reasonably unforgiving about. It's one of those four-part stories stretched over six parts mm. with an absolutely dreadful actress in the... Um, it's been so long since I've said I can't remember. Uh, Queen Tutty Button is terrible, absolutely terrible. Without further ado, <laughs> dragging it back to something we do want to watch, should we play episode four? Yes, I think we should. So, unlike Macro Terror, they haven't animatedified the um, title sequence. And actually, without the face in it, they don't really need to. No. Now, I've never seen it. That doesn't look bad, actually. It's very sort of stylized. It's a bit pop arty. But it's 60s. Fits in with that. Why doesn't he have a neck? Um, (laughs) (laughs) A flame effect are nice. And... Ben and Polly actually look like Ben and Polly. And he looks like General Cutler. Yeah. And Hartnell looks very good. Yes. Not brilliant for Ben there, but looking pretty good. And Polly's hair seems to have become a bit tousled. <laughs> What's been going on? I can't fire this rocket, and neither can you. Actually, long enough. Then Barclay has specs on. Maybe he only wears them every so often, just when he needs to. I do like this idea that the the planet Mondas is absorbing energy from Earth. It's not it's not explained how it's doing it, where it's going, yeah, where the, it's coming from. The, the plot makes no sense. Not that there's a, a colossal ball of burning hydrogen just a few million miles more that could probably get plenty of energy from. They do have a bit of problem with teeth, mm. don't they? Because General Cutler look, looks really good until he opens his mouth and you get Wallace and Gromit's teeth coming out. So I really can't fault the animation here. It's clearly animation and not trying to be realistic, mm. but it works really well. The, the invasions, um, also like that, different animation style, but not trying to look realistic, mm. um, being fairly unap- unapologetically animated, and it works very well. 
I'm not sure how well this would work in colour, actually. I was just thinking the same thing. I actually think it would, because there's plenty... The way they've done it, like I say, it's very pop arty. I think you would have to tone down the pop art, the number of different shades in distinct areas on the faces. Otherwise, it would look a little bit odd. I mean, look at Hartnell. You've got about ten different shades yeah. on his face. And there'd be a massive disjoint between three live-action black and white and then suddenly an animated colour. Things like the faceless ones and the macro terror where it's completely well the macro terror where it's completely missing and then you get the uh, the color mm. works well faceless ones they they animate the um the existing episodes as well don't they yes they do yeah, yeah so that yeah. so that works as a right the way through power of the daleks works as a right, right the way through and if he's supposed to know about Cybermen by this point, how could he believe that? See, that's a bit weird. Because she's just walked across the South Pole with her coat slung over her shoulders. And then the Cyberman knocks her unconscious and magically she's wearing a coat with arms through the sleeves. Mm. Maybe he dressed her. He was being a, a gentleman Cyberman. Or perhaps they've kept the continuity errors on board out of a take of consistency. And that side man in the foreground appears to be playing the theremin. <laughs> and actually kind of sounds as though he's playing the theremin. <laughs> Why is he calling himself Unit Delta Plus when... Oh, was it only in the novel that they had names? No, they are on screen. The credits, the Krang and Zheng and whatever. Have you seen any of the fan animations from the telesnaps where they've taken somebody and... Yeah, it's... Oh, I don't know. It's not bad. I could happily watch an episode of that. I haven't seen one for quite a while. Because they've done one with Lesterson from... Power of the Daleks, and who else have they done recently? But they're absolutely convincing. Right. Um, maybe it's the loose, the, the really old loose cannon and things. Oh, no, no. This um, is very modern. Did you ever see that Power of the Daleks one that they did as a live, live action and, and modernised it? No, I saw fragments yes, of I it. Yes, I did. And then when I tried to look for it on YouTube, it had all disappeared. Well, it got forcibly removed by the BBC. I suspected. Yeah, Power of the Daleks Reimagined, it was called. With, oh, that bearded fellow that played the Doctor a lot. I can't remember his name. But I did think it was a nice touch that they got him back. When they did the Power of the Daleks animations, they got him to do the live-action reference Doctor for the animation. Well, gentlemen, stalemate, I think. Oh, that's a nice touch. The, the, the silhouette, mm. yes. I think it was more the finger on the chin. That was very Hartnell-esque. Mm. Well, he does a lot of that sort of expression shot in mm. the foreground thing, doesn't he? It was something he once said to Peter Purvis. Mm. Television, very small. Hands by the face. That's why there's a lot of hands by the face acting. Yes, because Peter Purvis got the, the job as Stephen because William Hartnell had got him with him so well during the chase. Mm. I mean, wouldn't have got the job if he hadn't been a good enough actor to do the job. Unlike 
certain later male companions. Slightly different reason for casting. And actually, notable female companions from slightly earlier than this who are not blessed with acting jobs. I couldn't possibly comment on how they stayed the course so long. Any interactions with the leading men? Oh no, I was thinking of Katerina. I'm surprised she lasted as long as she did. Well, there was a, a thing on the episode of Verity where they were saying that um, the, there were some people who say the original plan was for Vicky to be the one who stayed for those four episodes and she was to be the one that died in the airlock. That would have been a nice touch. You would have given a shit. Yeah. And also with, with Katerina, it was just, was she flailing about randomly and just happened to hit the wrong thing? Whereas with Vicky, you'd, you would know a very definite choice. Yeah. I mean, I've no idea if that's true or not because I'd, I'd never heard it as a theory before, but it, it's quite a nice one. Well, I know Maureen O'Brien was quite surprised to come back and find that she'd been fired. Because word had got around that she didn't want to carry on. Well, she wasn't particularly enamoured with it, but she didn't want to leave. Because uh, I think that was the whole... When John Wiles took over as producer, I think... Clean sweep sort of thing. Well, except it wasn't really a clean sweep, was it? So, yeah, he got rid of Vicky, but Stephen hung around for pretty much the entirety of his run. Well, that's why John Wiles didn't last very long. I think he lasted for, what, three or four stories, and then gave up because he was dealing with all the hangovers from the previous era and he, he found the format too rigid he couldn't actually put his stamp on it as much as he wanted to mm. which is when just slightly sceptical about that because Innes Lloyd came in and immediately put his stamp all over it so I, I, you, you just have to wonder um, but he put his, sta- his stamp over it for fairly minor things like changing the titles and that sort of thing until Trout was on board and then the historicals disappeared yeah because I believe Hartnell liked the historicals because mm. he didn't have scientific God, techno did. stuff to... Um... Ben again is being quite proactive like mm. he was in the previous couple of episodes and Polly is just sitting down. It's Ben's story, this. Mm. So it's always been put forward that the Sidemen are allergic to gold, certainly in the classic series. But in the early stories, God, it was all sorts of different things. In this one, it's radiation... The next one is gravity. Polly mixed up a poly cocktail of nail varnish remover. That was how they beat them in yeah. the moon base. In tomb, was it just cold and being sealed back in the tomb that it is? Partly it was Toberman and partly it was electricity, wasn't it? Oh, that, that was it, electricity, yes. Yeah. It's little wonder they're suffering from the gas when the, the mask is little more than a hood with a screen on it. Oh, yes, little baldy bloke must end up in charge because yeah. he's, he's about the only speaking part left. Now Ben's turn to play the theremin. The theremin. Oh, that isn't Ben doing it, is it? That's a nice effect. Mondas mm. bubbling away and breaking up. And second time that year, you'd seen the, the death of the Earth. Effectively. The Ark. Oh, it's been that long ago, I can't remember. Quite a good effect of the Cybermen dying as well. Mm. So again, there's no real ending to it. It just sort of ends. Yeah. 
Yeah, you see the Earth dying at the end of episode two of the arc. VHS days, I just cannot remember. I've not seen it for 20 years. Yeah. You see, the arc is one where the TARDIS team turn up, completely fuck things up, bugger off. <laughs> and then come back and go, ooh, was this us? The Doctor's had about five lines in this whole episode. And now she's not wearing a coat. No. The actual plot of the episode, it's a shame we don't have it, but it's a real shame we don't have this final Mm. regeneration bit. And I know we've got that 8mm footage that's been worked up as far as it possibly, possibly can. I'd never noticed before we started watching this is wearing for I think the, the first time the, the same clothes that he had on in the first episode at this point he nips off for a quick episode with Capaldi I it's still hugely atmospheric mm. even as, as an animated thing And in animation, they've sort of followed through on the snow machine effects, haven't they? Oh, this is nicely done. They've followed this shot for shot. And I've always thought that this is, to be honest, the most impressive regeneration. I just love this whole sequence. I've always quite liked the way they get both of them to do the same sort of tight-lipped, almost slightly frowny expression. Oh, Patrick Trout doesn't get a credit. Bear in mind that this was only the second story of the season, and so they'd find out the week after. It wasn't like most of the classic run where they'd have a regeneration and that was it for five or six months until the new series. But I think it was very sensibly done like this Mm. because after this the idea of regeneration was established. Yeah. I think if end of episode three there'd been a, a regeneration and Troutman had come in with um, with the smugglers, one, you'd be relying on the continuity from a TARDIS team who'd only been introduced in the previous story. Um, but two, completely unknown territory. Yeah. And I mean, realistically, that at this at this point, the show is held together with by Ben and Polly. And Troughton is brilliant when he comes in, but they're the ones that provide the continuity. They're the ones that 
get people thinking, yeah, this is still Doctor Who because mm-hmm. it's still got the people that recognise. Now, within a, within a couple of stories, Troughton has been established. I think listening to the, the audio as he found his feet from day one. I've never quite got why the sleeve notes to the CD release say that he'd not really perfected his characterization because, frankly... He is the Doctor from episode one, right from the start. I mean, you get a bit of post-regeneration confusion, which there's always been. But, but it, it only lasted half an episode. Yeah. And it wasn't extra, It wasn't as overt as it was in future ones. No, I and mean, by the time you get into... Well, Spearhead, that was half of the story was taken up. In fact, they were still sort of... It was still trying to convince the Brigadier about the end of episode four. And Castrovelva. Yes, the whole whole story. It's only in the, the very final line that he... Twin dilemmas, much the same. At time of the Rani. Yeah, when does Mel realise? It's about halfway through, when he settles down a bit. TV movie, the vast majority of that is post-regenerative confusion. Yeah. Christmas in... Yeah, they've all done it. In fact, they've all just taken it and run with it. I think the one that, that's least confused is actually tenant to Matt Smith. Robot, he pretty much hits the ground running. Yes, yeah, I'll give you that. But with with this, it was entirely down to how good a team and how good a set of actors. And how good a script. Oh, God, it's still one of the best scripts. Yeah. But that that whole sort of perfect storm bringing everything together. So you've, you've got the script. It looks, from the telly snaps, it looks fantastic. Very good supporting cast. A TARDIS team who are absolutely top of the game. It's top of my list for yeah. stuff to turn up. Uh, Power of the Dark has always been top of my list for, for things to turn up. Years and years ago, a, um, a late friend of mine, he introduced me to the VHS recons and he'd got them all immaculately printed covers with the, the old Black Sheep style covers. I couldn't believe it when he opened this canvas bag and he pulled out VHS copies of Power of the Daleks and Evil of the Daleks and The Massacre. And he gave me the two Dalek stories. And he said, go on and watch them, just tell me which one you prefer. At the time, I was more taken with Evil. And I can't believe I was ever more taken with evil than power. Evil has some fantastic moments. I mean, when you get Scarrow, mm. absolutely, absolutely brilliant. And if it was a, if it was a four-parter set on Scarrow with the bit of the the end, that would have been fantastic. Mm. Even if it if it was a six-parter with a bit less Victoriana. Yeah, I quite like the Victoriana, but it just go on a bit. The whole testing of Jamie mm. thing goes on too long. Um, but Power I have listened to over and over over the years. No, the Daleks box set. And then the year after, they did the Cybermen box set with 10th Planet and the Invasion. And the I've got to give kudos to primarily Mark Ayres. Because what he's done with the fairly ropey, in some cases, off-air recordings and brought them up to broadcast standard, it's incredible, really. Yeah. I mean, I, I listened to Power of the Daleks over and over again. And I've watched the animation. And it, it's not the best animation in the world, but because it's such a good story. Mm. But in terms of rounding off Hartnell's tenure, bit of a damp squib, but Tenth Planet, actually, that's uh, I enjoyed that a lot more than I remember. Yeah, um, and it introduced an absolutely classic villain. Mm. Some really nice tight performances. I mean, uh, Robert Beattie was fantastic. Yes. Sets looked brilliant. Again, with no money. They, mm. they, they did look good. I mean, the script was pretty good. It's just the regulars weren't really involved beyond Ben. The script isn't good. The story makes no sense. No, I mean, the actual dialogue oh, given, it's, yeah. not, it's not dull. It's not Galaxy 4 dull. It's, it well, it's take, a, a little unfair on Galaxy oh, 4. Oh, Galaxy 4 is dull. The science makes no sense whatsoever. 
And considering it was written by somebody who was brought in as As a scientist. scientist. And the Cybermen, I hadn't realised, but the Cybermen weren't the original idea for the inhabitants of of Mondas. So... I missed that was on that the info that, that was in the the info text. Um, yeah, they, they were supposed to be space monks, but because they'd been the monks. Oh, of course, recently. yeah. So, so the the only bit of really good science in it, i.e., the Cybermen, mm. wasn't the original premise anyway. Yeah. So <laughs> it only remains for one thing, Siri. I am Persian. Name your price. Now, this is where you, this is your chi- your time to shine. What what are we thinking? The drag queen index. The drag queen index has to be a one. There there really is nothing. I mean, yes, there's there's Polly looking very pretty in a sort of fairly shapeless dress, um, <laughs> and she is so animated as, as an actress. There is no resting bitch face. I mean, I suppose you could argue that Simon themselves have resting mm. bitch face, um, but no, there, there's not really anything here. I know. wouldn't have thought. I would, I would go with a one. So on that note, I think we can wrap it up, unless you've got anything else to, to observe about Tenth Planet. I, I don't think so. It's a maligned story. It's a story that has its flaws. It would be really nice if we had episode four, but actually there are other episodes I would prefer mm. to, uh, to recover, had we any choice about it. Well, we've got the important bit. Thanks to Blue Peter, we've got yeah. the, the most important bit of the episode. The regeneration does survive. It was used as a clip in 1973 in an episode of Blue Peter. So thankfully, we've got it. I'd be more miffed, I'd be more keen to get it back if that didn't exist. But yeah. No, as you say, better things to look for out there. So thank you for listening, boys and girls. Hope we've entertained you for an hour. We should be back next time with something else. Whatever the randomizer is set to. We have one lined up for the randomizer. I can't remember what it is. I can't either. We've bypassed the randomizer for this one in honour of Earl Cameron. We salute you, sir. Bye now. The Exton Moss Experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss. All featured television soundtracks are the property of their respective producers and no infringement of copyright is intended. The programme was recorded in Rishton, Lancashire, and produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit our website at extonmossexperiment.blogspot.com or find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.